Welcome, everybody, to episode 203 of the Piper's Dojo audio experience. And today we're going to look in on the very first hour of the Dojo U tuning clinic that I just put on in Troy. Uh, my good friend and colleague and master bagpiper Keegan Sheehan was there to help me out. And we had eight uh, super awesome students uh, join us for the clinic, which was super fun. Anyway, I thought I would just give you the raw audio here uh, f from these sessions. So there's hours and hours of footage here, and I think it's all good, and I'm happy to share big chunks of it with you. With that said, just keep in mind that um, I haven't edited this, so all of the casual things that happened and you know people dropping things and shuffling things and getting down and moving around uh, all of that's still in here so i just want you to know what you're getting into with that said give it a try and um you know it's almost like you'll be a fly on the wall with us as we dig in to uh some of this bagpipe tuning stuff i really hope you enjoy the audio i'd love to hear if you can uh you know post any comments or thoughts that you might have about it uh, how you enjoyed this, and hopefully you'll have some aha moments and also get to know a little bit about us, and, and hopefully you'll kind of feel like you were there. So without further ado, we're just going to jump in to the very first hour of the tuning clinic that we had in Troy over the weekend, and I suppose for posterity, we should say it would have been April 20th through 23rd, 2017, so here we go. It says I have 540 hours of record time left on this. It's just audio, don't worry. No one's filming you. Your questions may come through. If you have questions. Or if you do anything uh, out of the ordinary. So is there enough room for everybody at the tables, or do we need another table? We can spread out. Like, you don't really need, like... Sometimes the table's just good to lean on. Or if you want to take notes, especially if you've never done the dojo spiel before, some people will want to take notes. I, I, rec I would recommend writing down the 13 steps, at least. Can we take a picture of it when you're done? Or you can take a picture. If you're not familiar with it. Yeah. Sometimes, I don't know. I made the St. T's grade 3 band write it out. Yeah. I, I just made them do it. I think. Sometimes yeah. writing it out is helpful. I think it, help, I think it helps them remember it. I don't. I'm going to use my phone. Oh, okay. <laughs> Are you a hamster? I didn't bring it back. I thought I'd bring it back. Yeah? Oh. Born and bred in Montreal. Never liked them during all the fantastic years. What a bad movie, right? And I spent one season. You like to hear an underdog. Up in Toronto. And I went, what about that? So, I'm an well, sorry, well, sorry about last night. Oh, I'm not. That's part of the game. What are you going to do? Did they get knocked out or just lose? No, but the Rangers took the series lead. No doubt. It was 2-0 the series, right? For the Mavs, wasn't it? No, they split in Montreal. They split in Montreal. I enjoyed hockey, but when I moved back to the States, I never looked back. I couldn't find, tell you. It's hard to find. It's hard to find. Very passionate fans of yeah, hockey especially here, especially in this area. Like if you live in the city, 
city, there's more of them. In the city, there's a lot more people that Jersey. actually are into it. Jersey in the city. But in Albany, they're not in, the only thing they're into in this part of the world yeah. is classic rock. That's it. Which I'm okay with that, too. Yeah, but it's not on your radio like all the time. No, I, I have the classic rock station down there always on. You say move back to the States from where? So, um, I, like Keegan, I went to boarding school in Toronto. Okay. Um, and because Jim McGillivray was the piping teacher there, and he recruited all of us, and uh, so which was great because you know instead of taking normal music classes, um, which I did take, you know I was in the concert band and the jazz band, and whatever. But but instead of like actual, you know, or what you would consider normal music classes, I um, we just took bagpipe classes yep. with Jim. So like. Four, three or four times a week, you'd get like, mm -hmm. you know, you get listened to by Jim. It's kind of cool. I mean, it was awesome. And then, um, and then at, for university, I went to SFU because Jack Lee recruited me for that um, and invited me out. So for a couple summers while I was still in high school, I went and lived at Jack Lee's house, uh, and, and then I played with the band and, yeah. you know. Got, got the whole like West Coast spin on things, and uh, it's very interesting. Ontario versus BC like piping cultures are like fascinatingly uh, polarized as far as the approach. Everybody's everybody loves people from Ontario love uh, people pipers from British Columbia and vice versa. Am I telling a fib? Maybe a little. Uh, there might be a little bit of a rivalry there. <laughs> But uh, anyway, yeah, so, and then after, I played at SFU for six years, and then um, uh, Eric McNeil and Donald Lindsay and uh, some of the folks here, like, encouraged me to come back and get re restarted with Oren Moore, and, and, uh, and that's what we did, until a uh, catastrophic schism about four or five years ago that kind of sent the band down the tubes, as it were. <laughs> so, yeah, that's my story in a nutshell. Um, so we've done this a fair bit, you know. Um, one of the things that happened was when I moved back here, I had a normal job, like, uh, at a company called Davis Vision, where I, like, just did customer support on the phones. Mm -hmm. And uh, needless to say, like, you know, if I could get, if I could acquire, like, six weekly piping students, I can earn more money than I do at this totally crap job. Where like, like, I don't know if anyone here has ever worked phones before, but what happens is like, there mechanically, as soon as you hang up the phone, you get another call. Mm -hmm. So you think like, oh, like phone support, whatever. But it was, it was, not, it was wall to wall. And every call's timed and. <laughs> every call's timed, uh, it's recorded. And yeah, like, and then X number of times a month, they, the you know manager guy pulls you in and like randomly pulls a couple calls, and like you listen through it together, and then he gives you all sorts of crap for how poorly you handled something you could care less about. <laughs> uh, and then uh, it's like a dream job. What's that? <laughs> Interestingly enough, like I emailed when I decided I was going to leave. That's like Carl answers, answers the phone and you call the dojo. Yeah, <laughs> I, don't, uh, I don't answer the phone at the dojo very much. Uh, but uh, but I did train Carl on huh? everything I learned. That makes it no. Uh, but um, 
interestingly enough, like I gave my notice that I was going to leave, and I said, you know, if you could pay me even $2 more per hour, I'll stay. You've trained me. I know how to do everything. Like, like just pay me a little more, and I could stay. Because I, like, you know, now that I have enough students, I can't afford to keep this job, basically. Mm -hmm. um, so anyway, very long story. Point, made pointlessly longer. Um, so I ended up, you know, teaching piping kind of for, you know, to earn my rent and my expenses. And then, you know, that's really how the business started. Um, Donald, Lindsay, and I. Donald lives pretty close to here, by the way, for those who don't know. Uh, he and I did a lot of co collaborative stuff in the beginning. Um, and so, you know, he was a big part of getting things rolling and helped getting things started. And, um, and then eventually, like, uh, it was actually on my honeymoon I dreamt up the idea of the Dojo University website. You know, try to, because, uh, you know, as you can imagine, right, if you charge lessons, or if you uh, teach lessons, bagpipe lessons, and that's like how you make your money, there's a definitive ceiling as to how much you can earn, right? Mm -hmm. like, like a lot of people don't realize you can't teach bagpipe lessons in general before 3 p.m. You just can't do it. People are at work or at school. So like, you know, you have to start at 3 p.m. And if you want to make even, you know, like even a comfortable amount of money, you teach from 3 to 8 p.m. every single day. Like that would be the ideal. And like that just did not work for me. So like, uh, so a lot of what I've done, including this workshop, I was just uh, telling a few people earlier, like I love teaching, I love doing seminars, but I don't love traveling that much, especially now that we have a little 18-month-old, uh, like, you know, it's just kind of a drag, and I don't love traveling. So, like, this is an experiment as to, you know, if people would come here and maybe be able to do a similar thing. These guys are guinea pigs. Anyway, so this workshop, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday morning, right? I want to get you guys... Um, Wherever you are right now tuning your pipes, I want you to be, I want you to be like light years ahead. Uh, we're all at different levels. So um, for some of us, I think to even to walk away, even sort of being able to tune our pipes is going to be a huge accomplishment, right? Like you were maybe saying, like you're brand new and you, you know, they tune mine for me, right? And, and you're just not. So, so if I go someplace without them, I can. <laughs> yeah, and then meanwhile, like on the other end of the spectrum, somebody like Dillard, right? Dillard's played in really good grade three bands. Ken, you've played in good bands. So you guys have been tuning longer and you'll be more advanced. So that's like one of the things that we'll try to, you know, we're going to try to cater this to, you know, what you all need individually, um, particularly tomorrow. Like once we're going to learn the basics today, then tomorrow uh, we're going to be just diving in and we'll try to... Uh, you know, uh, we'll try to like start to address exactly what individuals need to do. Uh, has anybody here ever uh, shot a rifle? Yeah. If, if like, and I, this is not a gun discussion, but just in general. <laughs> like, we're, we're, already getting, we're already getting blue. Yes. Yeah. Uh, New York, New York. Has anyone ever shot, <laughs> anyone shot a rifle at fairly long distance through a scope and there's a target at the other end? Hands? Some people know. How about a bow and arrow at a target that's fairly far away? How about that? Yeah. Yep. Uh, I'm trying to think if there's any other good examples, but I don't think there are. But you could at least. Three pointer. 
What's that? No, I don't like that one. <laughs> You'll see where I'm going with this in a minute. If you let, let's take the the rifle like shooting analogy, right? I heard this somewhere, and it, it total. It's exactly what. It's exactly the problem with tuning, right? It's exactly the problem, which is you're shooting a sniper rifle. It's not rocket science, right? You, you go through the scope, you line up the scope on the target, and you, you pull the trigger. And if you know, as long as you don't move or anything, uh, you hit the target, right? Piece of cake. But what's the problem when? You as a controller of the rifle, right? Uh, and I, I've actually had the good fortune to like do this a little bit, and it's like really fun and challenging. But like as you know, as you might imagine, if you even if you even slightly breathe the wrong way, or have the smallest like incremental millimeter of a twitch uh, as the as the controller of the rifle, uh, what happens to the end result? Okay. Soft target. How far? Depends yeah. on how far the target's away. Oh, Wait, if it's far away, the target, the farther it's away. Work with me, like working me on as fast as amplified exponentially on the target. It's amplified exponentially away from the target, right? And that's how it works, right? The source, you know, the source of the, uh, you know, the, the bullet or whatever you would call it, of the round, uh, you know, the smallest change that you make is amplified and amplified and amplified when it comes to a target that's really far away. But bow and arrow would be the same way, right? If you move a millimeter, right, the effect that it has on the target is, yeah, really, really wide. Uh, I, guess, I guess golf could be a good example, too. Um, Three-point shooting, not so much. It's a little different, I feel like, kind of, but maybe not. Um, but like in the golf swing, right, if, you, if, your, if your club is even tilted a millimeter differently than the last time you hit that perfect shot, you should, the next shot's not going to be perfect, right? Well, I think the difference between shooting a basketball and shooting a golf ball is you're using a, some kind of tool to do it. Right. So you have less direct control over the Absolutely. end result. Yep. Uh, I think that's right. And I think bagpiping is a similar way. And that's the problem with tuning. Okay? Tuning is the target. Tuning is the target that's 200 yards away. Right? And, um, and it's a super challenging balancing act in order to get tuning to happen. That's the big thing, right? And that's where, I think that's where 90% of the issues that people have with tuning come, comes from, right? Is that it's a target that's 200 yards away and all of those things that we needed to do in order to have a chance to hit that target, which is so far away, if we didn't screw them up royally, we screwed them up enough to miss the target significantly. Does that make sense? Yeah. And, I, and I'm going to show you that in the 13 step. How many people have sort of seen the 13 steps of bagpipe sound before? Good. So we can just go through this quickly, right? What's the, um, what's the first, like, there's three, to my mind, there's three phases of this. What's the first phase of building a great bagpipe sound? What's the first phase? Like the first... Um, it's the first category, the first topic that you have to cover. Make and sure, make sure your equipment's good. What does that mean? Your Maybe. bag pipes airtight. The bag's airtight. Damn, you're good. All right, good. I would call it, well, the average person would call it bagpipe maintenance. Okay. Right? But you're absolutely right. Is my bagpipe airtight? The first, of, the first four of the 13 steps are the, the four steps of bagpipe maintenance. Uh, this is like the way. 
That's all you need. How many people feel like backpack maintenance is a giant pain in the butt? And it, and it never seems to end, and it always seems like when you do one thing, you forget something else, and then, um, good. Does anybody ever feel that way? It's like taking care of a rifle. Good. And we're we're going to talk about this more. It's like taking care of a rifle. That's good. Uh, it's a good point. Uh, we're going to talk about this more in this session. You're going to make him fall even more deeply in love with his analogy. I know. I, know. I love it. Wait till you see that. I got a whole new analogy. I'm going to try to. Yeah. Um, but uh, the first four steps are the four steps of bagpipe maintenance. If you can, and by the way, you were mentioning you're teaching bagpipes in schools. Uh, these are, if you make this your religion, this is going to solve this issue for you. Okay? And same goes for everybody else. But especially if you're running a band or teaching others, these are the four steps. What are they? Step one. It's actually more of a question than a step. What's the first thing that you ask? Ken, get us started. Is my bagpipe airtight? He knows he goes to my morning classes. <laughs> Is my bag airtight? What like what does that mean? Like or you know, what are we really asking? If, if we, and we're going to do this soon, but if we, cork, if we cork up our bag, right, if we cork up the stocks and blow it up, nothing leaks. Right, it should just sit there. Full. Right, tighter than a Tom Brady football. You know what I mean? That's a joke. Somebody had to bring that up, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, I know. We've got Keegan here, it's a Broncos fan, and a diehard Patriots fan. And I'm kind of like Tom Bill. I do like the Broncos. He's a, he's a Patriots fan. Anyway, here's my bag airtight. Look, uh, here's the new analogy I want to try out today. If you were on a submarine 200, uh, 200 leagues beneath the sea, how much water leaking into the submarine would be acceptable to you? <laughs> no. None. Zero None. molecules of water. Exactly. And that's like zero molecules. I, I, use that, I say exactly that to a lot of my students. Is my bag airtight? It's not just when I blow it up, does it feel like it's filled with air? Right? That's not it. It's is it airtight? So you blow it up as tight as you can. You walk away for a minute. You come back after a minute. And you should not be able to blow one more molecule of air into that bag. If you can't, you're that guy in the submarine 200 leagues below the sea, right? Oh, just a little water, no big deal. Um, but that's one of those things, right? One or two molecules, I'm using that me sort of metaphor, not like the real definition. Obviously, I'm sure molecules are escaping, but, but like a little tiny, 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 seemingly insignificant amount of air leaks out at this stage, right? Remember my analogy about the rifle, right? A tiny bit of air leaking out at this stage could take uh, what could be a tunable bagpipe and make it not tunable. Follow, are you following me, my, my yep. logic there? That's the first question we ask. And the reason, and it is the first question. It's not one of four questions, it's the first one we ask because that's the root of everything, right? The bag is the reservoir <laughs> that, that, you know, holds the air that we need to supply the instrument, right? So that's the first question we ask, because it's the first thing that happens in the process. What would be the next question that we ask? Um, if we're talking about, we're talking about not letting any air leak out of the instrument. Are your joints tight? What do you mean joints? Where you're hemmed up. 
connections. That's right. Uh, I have trouble keeping these as tight as I like because uh, I have moisture. This is my solo instrument where I use some moisture control systems inside, and like it, they tend to dry out the hemp. So this is not as tight as I like, and uh, I might even do some maintenance along with you guys today. Uh, but yeah, we want to make sure all these joints are tight. If if your bag is super airtight and everything else is set up really well, and there's a way for the air to leak through these joints, do you think it'll it will? <laughs> That's right, it will, it totally will. And it might not be a ton. You can still play your instrument if these aren't airtight. Your bagpipes are going to work, but that's not what we're interested in. We're interested in total efficiency so that we can get to the point where we can tune our pipes, right? So that's the next uh, question is, are my joints airtight? What's the next question? Continuing, and it's, you don't have to know the answer, you just have to follow the logic. Logically, what would be the next question. <clears throat> so I check my bag, it's good, the joints. Where's the next sort of place air could leak out of the instrument? Your reeds? What do you mean? Or is that, well, a reed that's too open is going to take too much air to keep going for any period of time. So. Your, your logic is good, You're, and that is, that's the fourth question, the fourth question. ish, okay. ish. There's one you missed one. Then it's your valve. What's that? Then it's your valve. No, it wouldn't be the valve. The valve, would, for me, is step one. Because if you blow into your bag and your valve is crap, air's going to leak out. Yeah. So you dress the valve with, question one. I like, I like it though, the gears are turning. Where's, before we talk to talk about the reeds operating, efficiently. There's one more place more you could leak. Anyone? You're not talking about possible minor cracks or anything or damage. Uh, no, that would be, if there were damage to the stocks, that would be, okay. is my bag airtight? And then beyond, if there are cracks beyond the leads, um, it's not really like part of the process. We just kind of uh, hope that's not the case. Nobody? Uh, okay, let me ask you a question. See that, see here, so this is where my joint is, but see this reed here, right? If this reed was wiggling around and it was loose, right? Which is not, it's quite tight. Uh, and I'm not gonna change it. But if this was wiggling around and loose, if you were air, would you rather go through this tiny little space where the tongue is, or just pass freely through uh, the reed seat where it's too loose. And yeah, the least resistance. That's right. No, you said I was that? specifically talking about the tongues. So yeah, you were talking about the operation of the reed seat, <coughs> which is a good, that's a good thing to talk about, but not until we've asked the third question, which is? Is the seat secure? That's right. Are the reed seats airtight? Or you can phrase it any way you want. But yeah, read seats air time. I spell read. R E E E D. Read seats. You think I would know that, but I don't. Uh, read seats air type. Right? And that's a big one. Especially the chanter read too. 
especially if you're in a band or you're one of those fidgeter, fidgeters, you know, like, oh, I have to raise my tambourine up. You raise it up, but it like needs more hemp, but you don't really have hemp close by, so you just kind of raise it up, but then you leave it and it's kind of wiggly in the reed seat. The air's gonna leak through there. You're gonna lose tonal quality, you're gonna lose air. You're gonna lose quality of sound, you're gonna lose stability. <coughs> All because of this tiny thing. And you might, you know, is it still going to work? Yes. But we, uh, we're, we gotta go beyond just getting our bagpipes to function. We have to get them to function, you know, we have to, we have to be able to get them to function like ultra efficiently in order to. Uh, let's not even start with that. I know, but the point is, don't do the that. Next, that's the next step right after are your reads ever. My, my reads never, my reads never would fall into that. Yep. Just, uh, just a brief like segue, right? Yeah, we're tied up. Did you thread the stock? Exactly. Yeah. Right. So I thread all my pipes. So there's, it's like literally a. Uh, How do you do that? Uh, with a tap and die. Oh. You can get it at any like hardware store. I'm not an expert. Carl had to kind of talk me through how to do this. Tiny like can set you up. Yeah. I assume. Uh, but yeah. then, but then the reeds, the reeds twist in. Right. An awesome idea. And they and they never like they're really, really tight. And they'll never like I a lot of channel read seats are like that. Yeah. Not, like the, the makers just make them that way now. So like this yeah. does not this only well, this I would be lying if you said does not make me nervous, but it, <laughs> um, it makes me nervous. But I'm pretty comfortable. That's <laughs> because no, he's doing it at us. Would you be would you be comfortable doing this with your pipes? Oh, no. 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 Never. No. <laughs> Do you also leave a trail of hemp? Off the read, sometimes like safety or no. Some sometimes, but but uh, mainly out of sloppiness and laziness, rather than uh, actually working, actually using it. But that's the old school method, right? The old school method is you have like some hemp. You have a uh, Japanese called it a lifeline, uh, and and then the lifeline gets goes up here when you put it in the stock, it gets pinned between you know the joint and the stock, so that if it did come out. It wouldn't fall all the way into the bag. Yeah, but see, I'm always worried that if that when you're then reseating the drum, sliding along there is actually going to pull the reed out. Yes. Because you're pulling on that. It can, pulling could on that lifeline. Could happen. Yep. Um, threading is the way to go. Uh, and cool. uh, some people are opposed to it because they have like antique pipes or something. Like, or my pipes are from, like, so there is like a, there is, there are some scenarios where I wouldn't necessarily recommend it, you know, if your pipes are from 1914, like, made by the hand of God himself, uh, with full silver engraving, um, you might not want to do it, but for most normal people, threading, 100%, uh, you know, that, that this is a brand new set that I got a couple months ago, uh, and I just, First thing I did before I even played them, I said, "Do you use fine thread or coarse thread?" Uh, I don't. The woodworking terms, I don't know. Oh. There's a thingy. You put yeah. it in the thingy, and <laughs> you stick it in, and you, you carefully tap. do you it. Put a tap in. And yeah. <laughs> I would recommend having somebody who knows, you know, knows how to do that kind of thing to do it. I don't know. That's why I was wondering if it was coarse or fine. I'd like, like, don't ask me to do it. Okay. Because uh, I, you know. I did mine, but I, I guess I think I might have gotten lucky. <laughs> but yeah, there's people out there like Johnny Lloyd coming out for the Jersey people. You know, he's like one of those types of guy. Uh, Carl was great because you know he was 
or at least he thought he was like carpentry superstar guy. So. Uh, don't worry, he'll never listen to the audio of this. I think I'm safe. Um, but it also, not only does it help avoid your needs from falling in the bag, it also supercharges number three for me. Like, I am so sure that thing is utterly airtight and no air would ever sneak through. You know what I mean? So that, I'm big on that. Okay, question number four. You were talking about the efficiency of your reads before. Um, and we need to do a process called drone read calibration. All right? And it goes, you know, we'll use this again as a visual aid, right? This is an inverted tongue base read. So the tongue goes the different way that you're used to, but you know the tongue the tongue can be any degree of open or closed. How would you adjust that? Right? With the bridle, right? You can move the bridle up or down, and that gives any degree of open or closed for the read. So what what degree do we want? How do we set this up the way that's best for us? It's gotta it's gotta it's gotta feel right. Like, it's got to feel right. Right. That doesn't work for me. Well, the point is, that's like if my, if my submarine captain, twenty thousand leagues between the sea, is like, this course feels right to me, guys. No, no, it's not right now. It needs to be something you can comfortably play. The point is, if someone else can comfortably play your read, it doesn't mean a thing. Well, what I thought, ideally, your maximum blow should shut it off. Yeah, as a starting point. Right. I mean, we obviously, if we're going to play our instrument. It has to be comfortable-ish for us to play. It might be challenging. It might challenge our strength a little, but it has to be playable. Uh, and you said if you blow too hard, it should shut them off. Yes. Why? That's correct. That's what I was told. Well, okay. <laughs> let's go beyond what we've been told, um, and like, let's think about the logic behind it, right? If it doesn't shut off when you blow too hard, what does that mean? means you're putting too much air through it. That means, yeah, unnecessary air is leaking out of your instrument. And it's leaking out to a pretty significant degree, potentially, right? Mm -hmm. um, as a matter of fact, my cane drone reads that I'm getting going for the band are in a state of being far too open right now. Uh, that makes it very hard to play. Um, but yeah, air is leaking out here. And so what we need to do is we need to set up our drone reads so that they take the optimal amount of air, no more air than necessary to play. Okay, and there's a process by which we do that. Okay, it's a little bit harder than one, two, and three, but we call that drone read calibration. Do you do this without the chanter at first? You can't. There's is a that your prescribed method, or is it, this, is, this is where you get into the feedback between the two? That's right. Um, drone read calibration changes depending on the strength of your chanter read. Does that make sense? So if your chanter read is hard, your drone read will need to be set a little bit more open in order to not shut off. Right? If your chanter read is easy and smooth and mellow, like my solo read is, uh, the, uh, the, you know, the openness will have to be decreased uh, because otherwise, I could way overblow my solo read, but these drones would still be going and they'd be all over the place. If you, not only if your drone reads are too open, right? It's not just that they, it's wasting air. 
But is a, is a drumming that's more open going to be more or less stable? Like, is it going to change more or less with changes in line than a reed that's closed down? It's definitely going to be unstable. It's going to be less stable, absolutely. It's not necessarily going to be radically unstable, but it's going to be less stable. It's going to be harder to lock that into tune. And any changes in blowing pressure is going to send that up. Is it going to accumulate more or less moisture? More, if it's more, the more open it is, the more moisture it's going to accumulate. And it's going to accumulate that faster. So there's like a lot of really important reasons that drum reed calibration is something that we have to do. But anyway, these are them. Uh, when uh, we ran the band, when we ran Oren Moore, and when we were involved at the Stuart Highlanders, right? This was, this was the beginning of every practice. Should be the beginning of every pipe band's practice, pretty much ever, unless it's like super, 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 super top band. Uh, but you review, I reviewed the four questions as a group. But even then, most of the players are doing it individually. That's right. But it's just a, it's just a double check, right? It's like checking before you take off in an airplane. It's like checking that you filled up the gas tank, right? That's a good. It's you want to make sure. Doesn't matter how good of a flyer you are if you're out of gas. You know what I mean? Uh, so, uh, but we review this as a group. So for those who like teach groups, this should be like, this should be a poster on the wall. Uh, and it's something that you should do every day. And I do, it's not just something that I tell students to do. This is actually what I do every single time I get the pipes out of the box. Right? So, uh, and I'll just show you real quick. Right? There's my pipes in the box. I don't just pick them up and play them. It looks like it, but I don't. Um, this is a synthetic bag. So is my bag airtight? It better be or else I've got bigger problems. Right? So, so number one, you know, is my bag airtight good? Number two, before I pick my pipes up, I give a quick twist to all my joints before I pick them up because to make sure that they're not loose or tight. As I mentioned, they're a little bit on the loose side here. Uh, is it possible that if your joints were good yesterday, they might be bad today? Is that possible? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely, it's possible. Can the joints be too tight? Absolutely, yeah. Okay. These joints should take a little bit of muscle to move. Right? <clears throat> this takes no muscle to move, well, very little. So that's why it's a bit on the loose side. If they're too tight, you won't be able to get them out. That'll be very, very bad. So it can definitely be too tight. It should take a little bit of muscle to move. If I check a joint and it takes way too much muscle to move, what should I do? That's right. Before, before it's too late. It should take off a little hump. Because if it swells more, uh, it might never come out. Uh, it, might, it, it might crack the wood. It can't. So. So that's a really good question. It could be too tight. So you, you'll find what works for you. Uh, my young, I have a young 13-year-old girl that's a student of mine. Her joints can't be as tight as mine. Why? Well, because I'm way, way stronger than her. So, so if she were to like operate my joints the way I like to have them set up, she probably wouldn't be able to get them out. Right? So like you kind of have to, you have to use what works for you. And that's part of what this weekend is about. 
It's like, yeah, we're going to do some talking here this morning. But then like, you kind of have to get your hands dirty and figure out like, how it feels for you and exactly what you, you're going to do to make it work for you. That's one of the big things about tuning. What works for me will probably work for you, but you'll probably have to make tweaks. Anyway, as I'm picking my pipes up, right, I'm checking all these things. OK, the joints are good. I don't need to check my reed seats right now. They're, you know, but what I do is if I ever take a reed out, before I put it back in again, I'm always checking that tightness, right? And then one thing that I definitely, and the last thing I do, right, as I get my pipes out, I usually do this before the chanter, um, is I just blow up my drones and make sure that they all shut off at like a, you know, nice pressure that makes sense. <laughs> Like where you where like roughly where they're tuning will also influence. It could, yeah. Where they shut off. Yes, it's sometimes so worth like tuning them a little bit. They're more or less tuned now. Like this is where they were yesterday. And then when I just increase the pressure a little bit, see how they all shut off like that. These these are like super mellow, mellowified. These are my solo drones. Uh, my band drones would be a lot louder uh, because of how my bagpipe would be set up. It's different for the band. And my chanter reed is much harder, so the reeds themselves will be much more open. It'll sound different, but the same sort of thing. But if I do that, and all the drones shut off as I expect them to, that's how I cover one, two, three, four. And all of that is covered before I even start playing. Okay? Everybody following me there? How many people do this ritualistically every single time they touch their pipes? Raise your hand. Keeg. Don't say ritualistic. It has, like, for me, that's, that's, that's what changed it for me. What, what is the frequency with which you actually cork up your bag and check it? I know, like, so before I ever played a sheep, so for many years I played like a Ross, I'll say, I'm going to get Cortex back. Um, I never thought about my bag being airtight because I just kind of took it as a, a given that it was a synthetic bag, so it'd be airtight. But over time, they do. It's not necessarily They true. do become less airtight. Yeah. You know, they have a you know. They have seen. They have a lifespan, um, and then yeah, there's definitely things like with the Ross. I know that you can apply the lubrication to the zipper and stuff like that. Different yeah. things like that. So like, if you have a synthetic bag, obviously when I have a sheet, I check, I cork it up and check it pretty regularly, probably at least once a week or once every two weeks, the, the longest that I go. Um, and you can feel it a little bit more as it becomes less airtight. So I think about it consciously more frequently than I do when I had a synthetic bag. But how often would you cork up your synthetic bag, say, to check and make sure that it's definitely airtight, as opposed to yeah. just kind of taking it as a given that the last time you checked it, it was airtight, so it's probably still airtight. That's, that's, a, good, that's a good point. So, so to preface that, right, I don't cork up my bag every day. And, and, like, and do the airtight test. That would be overkill. That would take way too long, I would never do it. And so like, yeah, today I'm assuming it's good. Um, you can do that on a hide bag as well. There are two times when you should, re, when you should take things apart, recork it, and test your bag. There's two times. Number one is if it's been a prolonged period of time since the last time that you played. 
right? That makes sense. So, so for me, if it's that, for me, like, the synthetic bag isn't a great example, but with the sheepskin, if it's been more than a week since I've played, I'm recorking that for sure. And then, and then in the peak season, if it's been more than a couple days, you know, it's worth checking. Um, but uh, so that's the first time. And the second time is anytime you suspect it might not be airtight. Like, you're, you know, ever have a day where maybe your pipes felt good yesterday and suddenly they don't feel good and like you're uncomfortable and they seem to be taking too much air? You ever get that feeling? It's a very common feeling for bagpipers. Uh, whenever you get that feeling, I go all the way back to number one. I don't waste any time. Because like you can, you can uh, tinker with your drone reads and you can mess around with this and you can do that and you can do all, and then it turns out at the end of the day, your bag just dried out overnight and it's leaking. You know, so I always go back to step one and work my way through. If it is airtight, it only takes uh, 120 seconds uh, to check. You have a sense of how long a synthetic bag its factory insured air tightness? Like, I don't what's know. The, what's the lifespan? Depends on how much they're used. Despite the fact that despite the fact that I have been playing the synthetic bag this year quite a bit, because I've been competing a lot more in the solos, um, I'm I'm generally anti-synthetic bag. Um, so I don't. But I know like a lot of like a lot of guys play them. Oh yeah, I'm sure Certainly. most people here have synthetic yeah. bags. Yeah, it's pretty sad that I've had. No more than two years. Two years? That's, that's I'm playing Ross, I'm playing Bannon playing. And you find they start to get leaky after two years? Yeah. Really? The more moving pieces a bag has, the shorter its lifespan. Period. And where do you find it usually starts to leak? Around like the grommets and stuff or No, I just find that the bag or... starts to just wear down. Right? Yeah. And it uh, just gets spongy. It gets like thin, okay. if you will, right? Yeah. So um, it's not a given and you have to check on a fairly Routine basis. One, two, three, four. Good? How's everybody doing? You need a stretch yet? <laughs> okay. That's this is the first one. Yeah, just uh, yeah. on one a little bit more. Um, you said so part of the bag being airtight is also um, your blowpipe and the valve. So, yeah. so part of that is would naturally be the blowpipe joint itself and also whatever kind of valve you're using and how airtight that is. So mm -hmm. Maybe um, what what would you so part of the diagnosis of your bag being airtight is also diagnosing whether or not your blow pipe is functioning. Sure. Out. So maybe your bag's airtight, but it's still losing air when you blow it up, and that could be a matter of That's right. valve. What what do you do if you're stick your I would stick there? my ear to the blow pipe and make sure you're not hearing any air leaking out. That's usually what I would do uh, for a valve test. Right? If the valve is leaking, you'll hear it. Um, it. It sometimes sounds like a little sound, you know, just like a little bit of air. Sometimes there's like a ton of air coming out. Um, but yeah, you can use your ear and listen for that. If your blowpipe has a crack in it, that could be a sneaky way that your bagpipe might be leaking air, right? Because once the valve shuts, you'll never know. But while the valve is open, the blowpipe is kind of part of the ecosystem, and if it's got a giant crack, you know, it's going to make you lightheaded to try to keep your pipes going. So blowing air back out into the atmosphere. Yeah, yeah. And, but but you don't even really realize it. Right. It, it could be a sneaky thing, and blowpipes crack most often because there's so much 
condense moisture in there. Good? How are we doing? Good, that's phase one. It's phase two. I want to go through this more quickly now, uh, and then we'll go through it in more depth later. This gets a little cerebral, especially if we're just talking, but after we do maintenance, what's the next thing? Tuning, right? Now that our bagpipes work, it's time to tune them up. Seems like a good idea. Nope. Thanks for playing though. <laughs> I appreciate someone had to take the fall. I appreciate yeah, yeah, yeah. it. Just be ready for many more traps. That's okay. I'm good. Um, Let me be straight Let me, uh, something I, a generic thing I throw out there, like, would anybody know today who Jimi Hendrix was if his guitar sounded like crap? Even if he tuned it really well, if he played on a toy guitar, would anyone know who he is today? No, he was famous for getting an amazing tone, earthy tone out of his guitar, right? And on top of that, he had amazing solos and he was the man, right? Mm -hmm. But like, he was also famous for the sound. And so tonal quality is the next phase. <clears throat> we have to make sure we have something worth tuning. Does that make sense? So what's tonal quality mean? We've, we've heard, like, anybody been, ever been told to like blow tone or anything like that? <laughs> ever heard that? Yeah. What does that mean? No clue. <laughs> Isn't it, it's interesting, right? I can't tell you how many times people yelled that at me over the years. Okay. And, and I was like, oh, okay, like, so what does that mean? Like, does that mean you just like blow really hard or something? Or? Um, is it true that some bagpipes sound better than others? Okay. Yes. Like when you hear, has anybody here ever heard like Jack Lee play? Or Stuart Little or any of the top, like top notch uh, Highland Piper guys? Does YouTube count? Yeah, if you hear them on YouTube, yeah. <laughs> and you hear their bagpipe, and, and yeah. does it sound different than yours does? Yeah. I've always attributed yeah. that to talent. Yeah. Okay, sure. Talent, talent in what area? Like, what, what's the difference? Blow it steady. Blowing steady, that's good. That's a big part. If a bagpipe is blown steadily, it's going to sound a lot better than a bagpipe that's not blown steadily. What else? Let me ask you another, let me ask you another question. Another quick example. What's better? Right? That or this? Which, which sound did you prefer? Same instrument, right? Second one, no. Definitely. You prefer the second one? <laughs> <laughs> no, you get a bad picture. <laughs> Alright, so you're going to be in a special group. Right? <laughs> yeah. no, uh, which one was better? Which one, was, uh, which one had a better tonal quality? The first one. Okay, cool. So like, but it's, it's just a chanter, right? How is it possible that I could play one way that sounds good and one way that doesn't? It's just, this is it, right? It's an air. I've set up my, this, let's pretend this is my bagpipe. I've set this up. Uh, I've done all my four questions, and so now I just play it, right? Just how much you're blowing into it. Yeah, so what you're saying is the amount I'm blowing into yeah. it makes a difference. Absolutely. You think that's true on the bagpipe, not just the practice unit? Absolutely. That's right. It's not just about, and, and again, we'll go into a lot, a lot, annoyingly more depth on this. Frustratingly more depth, way more depth than you'll ever. You'll wish you weren't here for that segment, which is right at, which is right before lunch. Just so you know, uh, 
but uh, it's not just about blowing steady. No. <laughs> yeah, you're trying to help me there. Yeah, it's not just about blowing steady. It's about at what pressure you blow perfectly steady. That's what, for me, if, if, if I were to tell someone to blow tone, that's what I would mean. I would mean uh, to blow steadily at the optimal pressure for your instrument. What is the optimal pressure of your instrument? Like, uh, how hard should you blow on your bagpipes? Pretending you could blow perfectly steady, how hard would you want to blow? I'll, I'll ask it another way. If you could have... Uh, if you could have any amount of money in your bank account, how much would you have? Much Go ahead. All of it. All of it. <laughs> like, all is there it. a number? Is there a number that you that you want? What's the best? What's the best amount of money to have in your bank account? Math is infinite, so no. That's the right. That's the answer I was looking for, which sucks. Usually, people are like a billion dollars. Then my question would be, well. If, why, if you could have a billion and one dollars, why would you choose a billion? And it's the same with bagpipe pressure, right? And we'll get into this in more depth later. But what we want is, we want the uh, maximum amount of pressure possible in our instrument. I bet some of the people at the Psychedelic Contestant would have uh, a different answer than that. you want to work for that. Oh yeah, how much money you want in your bank account? I don't know, man. I think they're business people over there. I think they're really good. Uh, Although they did have to uh, do the, uh, I think they just recently had to replace their Baby 11 over there, and they did a Kickstarter campaign to raise the money for it. Just enough, just enough for my bagel maker. Just enough for the bagel maker. Uh, but uh, the backpipes are the same way. Uh, we want the maximum amount of air possible in our instrument. Good. That doesn't make sense. Why doesn't it make sense? Because then my drones will shut off. They will. Ken's been really laughing because he's been through this. Okay. Ken's well, giving me the same thing. Right. Blow them up, squeeze hard, they shut off. Yeah. So infinite pressure doesn't make sense. That's right. I didn't say infinite. I said maximum. We want the maximum pressure put through the instrument at all times. Okay, let's define the maximum pressure. I think you'll feel better. Let's say before they shut off. Well, it's no, not about the drums. Them you can adjust the drums to any pressure you want. So look, listen, we'll, we'll do this more later. I'll prove it to you later. I'll tell it to you now. The maximum pressure we can put through the chanter read without any unwanted sounds occurring, like squeaks or chirps or, uh, or the chanter read like just like going into overload and gurgling and stuff, right? Mm -hmm. So we want to put the maximum amount of air we can through that chanter read. It's the exact same principle as a practice chanter. The maximum amount of air. If I blow any harder, it starts to sound freaking bad, right? And it squeaks, and it'll, this read would shut off. Uh, but that's the, that's the premise. The sweet spot, okay? So, five. Identify the sweet spot, right? Identify the sweet spot, which is the maximum amount of air we can put through the chanter read 
before it starts to squeak or make unwanted sounds. Does that make sense to everybody? Yeah. Anything less than that, okay, and we don't get the best response out of the read, and we don't get the best sound, okay? And I'll prove it to you later on the real pipes, but as you can hear, right, as I ease off the pressure of this read, that's about halfway down, but it's already considerably less pleasant, isn't it? If you're trying to make the best music possible, you wouldn't choose that pressure, would you? I, I would choose higher, as high as I can, get the most response. <coughs> if I play the practice chamber, I'll throw it a little vibrato. But you know what I mean, though? You following me there? There's a, there's a pressure that we need to play at. This is more important than blowing steadily. Way more. Uh, part of the reason is, if you always hit the sweet spot perfectly at all times, what does that mean? You're blowing steady. But, right. but the point is, the tone is noticeably improved over the top. Yeah, yeah. And I will, uh, it, I'll show you that. I'll show you that in the real bagpipe sense as well. Uh, identify the sweet spot, which is, and by the way, you might go back to step four at that point, right? A lot of us probably will, because we'll find that the sweet spot of our chamber read, all of our drum reads just shut off, because we calibrated them to too low a pressure. So they might shut up, you know what I mean? So four and five play with each other a little bit until you get it perfectly balanced the way that you want. Good. Now that we know what the sweet spot is, now what? Now that we know the pressure that we want to blow our bagpipes at, we what, what's the next that, ninja skill that we need? Maintain that sweet spot or that pressure. Otherwise known as? Steadiness. Steadiness. Right. Now this is where we start to work on the steadiness of our blow. Right? Here's the thing. There are two types of unsteady blow. Okay? And it's, I think it's extremely important that we know the difference between the two. Because if we don't, we're going to have a very difficult time troubleshooting it and improving it. So what are the two different types of unsteady blowing? <coughs> Ken knows this already. He knows already. Right? Good review, though? It is. What are the two different types of unsteady blowing? You, and what's interesting is you might feel like you don't know this right now, like you don't know, but you totally know. Would it be... Um, Once I explain it to you, you'd be like, oh man, he's right. Unaware of, of the fact that you're screwing up and being exhausted to where you can't not screw it up. That's not where I'm going with this. <laughs> but but it, uh, where I am going with it will address those issues. Okay. Blowing too much? Blowing too much? Too long? In between? I was thinking the change between blowing and squeezing. Change between blowing and squeezing? Not being the same. You're good. What you're describing is the first type of unsteady blowing. Let's, so let, let's just go with this, because I don't want to take too long. But this is, a, a, I call this physical blowing technique. Or physical blowing mechanics. Okay? This is the this is the 
this is the one everyone thinks of when you think about unsteady blowing, right? You have to blow into there. You have to squeeze when you're done blowing, right? But then, of course, we need our arm to smooth those transitions so that the blowing stays steady while we do that. So while we're, while we're blowing at the sweet spot, uh, we, uh, we're blowing, squeezing, and transitioning. That, those are the physical mechanics of steady blowing. Um, as we will see as the day goes on, right? People have a tendency to squeeze less on the arm than they do than the pressure they make when they blow, or or when they you know when they switch from blowing to squeezing, the pressure drops or spikes. Spikes, spikes. Right uh, <laughs> during those transitions, and the steadiness changes when that happens. Right, physical blowing mechanics, uh, and unfortunately for all of us. Of the two types of unsteady blowing, this is by far the easiest uh, to perfect. Or, you know, it'll never be perfect, but to master. Yeah? So if that's the first type of unsteady blowing, what's the second type? I would guess the mental one, because sometimes, like, you got something difficult, you kind of forget what you're blowing. That's right. Mental blowing anomalies. It's just like I, I had to come up with these fancy words because like because if you just say physical blowing and mental blowing, like it has kind of like a an inappropriate like people's minds always go to an inappropriate place. So I, that's why I use a, a mechanics and anomalies now because like it helps cover up that that place that you know all the teenage people I teach want to go with it. Um, mental, what's a mental blowing anomaly? Let, let me ask you a question. Anybody here ever get to that high A in Scott and the Brave and the pressure goes wee like this? Our whole band. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Otherwise, known as, otherwise known as your entire band. <laughs> right? Or Amazing Grace, it's even worse. That's fine. Yeah, it's the same. <laughs> I really understand how that's not physical blowing mechanics. Yeah. Right? It's, it seems like it is. It's not. It's, uh, it's something we're doing with our finger work that's causing us to, uh, that's causing us to basically seize our bodies. Um, anybody ever get to a difficult passage? So it, it, is, a, it is a physical issue that has a mental... But it's caused a by a psychological genesis. Right. It's, it's not caused by a deficiency right. in your ability to operate your instrument. It's caused by a, a mental, like, um, it's, well, basically, it's caused by an inability to continue this process yeah. while your mind is working on something else. Does anybody ever get to a difficult passage and their blowing changes? Like, maybe you start to overblow when you play a really hard tune uh, or, or underblow. Right? That's the same idea. So like, whenever something our fingers are doing, whenever that causes a change in blowing, that's a mental blowing anomaly. And it happens all the time. 
Uh, for me, I get it on, lately I've been getting it on E like crazy. Anytime I play an E, now granted, it's not ultra drastic like it was when I was a beginner, but whenever I get to E, I start to mess around and like, and I catch myself doing weird things subconsciously on E, like backing off the pressure. Like, why, why am I doing that? It drives me nuts. The problem with, problem with the mental blowing anomaly is um, you'll end up setting your pipes up to accommodate those anomalies. That's a more advanced issue, but like, what, it's mental and it's subconscious, and unless you're smart and you work on it, you don't realize you're doing it. So if every time I got to an E, this is just an example, but if every time I got to an E, I had a tendency to just subconsciously underblow that note, right? Then I would change the tuning of the E so that whenever I did that, it still sounded good. But then, your E starts to sound good when you back off on the E, but what about the note that comes before the E and the note that comes after the E? Could be any note. But now that note is gonna be out of tune because of this weird mental blowing problem that I have. That's an advanced application of this idea, but um, absolutely, it's something, I, it's something I kind of struggle with in pursuit of like tuning perfection, which I'm never gonna get anyway. Now, what really helped me get around, my head around the difference between those two, both that five and six and seven, mm -hmm. is the first one for me is voluntary. <clears throat> and the second one is involuntary. Yeah. I don't even know I'm doing it, right? Right. So that's how it's sort of really, I think of it in those terms. Not like, it's such a mental thing. It's like, it's just happening for some reason, and I'm not controlling it. Right? Yeah. And sometimes, uh, uh, <clears throat> sometimes when you're playing and the blowing is unsteady, sometimes it's because your mechanics are bad. Because... <laughs> You're blowing too hard, or you're not squeezing enough, or when you transition between blowing and squeezing, you're cranking your arm too much and it's causing it to change. So sometimes, bad blowing is caused by this. Other times, it's caused by this. Like we get to that high A in Amazing Grace, and suddenly the blowing is <clears throat> way out. Okay? Sometimes it's caused by this. And the scary part is, for most people who haven't been blessed with this lecture. <laughs> For most people, it's a deadly combination of the two, where, you have, where, where they'll never discover the reason why they're blowing unsteadily, because they don't know how to break it down. You see what I mean? Mm -hmm. Usually it's a combination of the two. Usually you're playing Amazing Grace, you're surging on all the high A's, and you're not blowing mechanically very well either, and it's like this whole big churning mess. <clears throat> Let me ask you this. This is, this, is the, this is the important part. The, the real important thing here is, this is, a, a ton, this is tonal quality, right? <clears throat> the final category is tuning. What hope do you have to be able to get your pipes in tune if you're, if you're not at the sweet spot and you're swirling around in six and seven land? Uh, completely unable to blow steadily. What hope do you have to get your pipes in tune? Yeah, this, is not, this is never going to happen. It's never going to happen. Right? And the interesting thing about well, the, the, the trap I set for you earlier, right? Okay, our bad pipes are set up. Let's start tuning, right? That This is the problem with that. 
this tuning is never going to happen. It's not like you might get lucky every now and then and your bagpipes might become in tune. Never. Never. Right? Just like if you're shooting your rifle and you always do this right before you shoot. Mentally. And it's a tick, it's a tick that you have and you don't even realize you have it. You're never going to hit the target. Anticipate the round and push into the rifle. What's that? They anticipate the round sure. and push into the round. That's right. Yeah, that's a common thing, right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's, it is a good analogy. A good analogy. I'm not sure it's as, I'm not sure the submarine analogy is as developed, uh, but it's not bad. Uh, but yeah, then tuning comes next. And uh, how, what time is it? 9:51. Okay. Uh, I think let's leave it here for now. The remaining six steps all pertain to tuning. Uh, but I think we'll cover those later because I want to work. I want to work through these seven things uh, next. Why don't we take like take five or so minutes, ten minutes? But at the end of those ten minutes, uh, get your pipes out and you know get get everything ready to do one through four, and we'll do them together. Well, that we might do another day.